Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI 101, we talked about the founding of the Cape Colony by the Dutch and what would become South Africa, and their early introduction of racial segregation and slavery into their society. We also discussed the British gaining control of the colony in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, and their efforts to make the colony British as quickly as possible, creating resentment and exodus among the Dutch-speaking settlers. Today, we'll pick up as the clash between the insistent British and independent Boers leads to new states, warfare with indigenous Africans, and eventually conflict over some of the most valuable natural resources of the 19th century. Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Gary Hallman. All right. And we've been talking about South Africa. Okay, so... It's, the, it's, it's time for the, the initial meeting. The, so you got the English... Yeah, you've got the the Boers or the I guess sorry, what were they calling themselves? We, we can again? go with Boers. They're, they're, Boers. I, I suppose okay. you could say Afrikaners at this point, but Boers helped to distinguish the 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 members of of the the former Dutch colony that have decided to leave, not put up with British rule. Um, so they're they're walking into at this point, you know, crazy politically unstable. There's just been a change in power. You've got a huge, massive mm-hmm. uh, group that is just kind of you know taken over this area and yeah. this is kind of what they're walking into this is what they're walking into there's actually going to be several states that end up being founded uh by these the, the this exodus the uh the, the great trek as it were and the the zulu aren't encountered by like the very first ones um the first of them actually end up just sort of going like right across a river there's like one river it's called the orange river uh originally Dutch, it's from the yep. House of Orange, all that, um, that's been long like agreed upon as uh, a border, as a natural border for the Cape Colony um, with local indigenous tribes. And they go, you know what? We have every right to go across that river if we want to. This is this is this can be our space too. No British can bother us over here. And they kind of cross it and they go like, ah, I hope we don't run into any trouble. But the weird thing is, when they went over, this tribe that they had met, that they had originally ne- uh, negotiated with, the Patong, they weren't there. And they went, okay, this is fine. We'll start setting up towns and we'll set up, start setting up farms and this is great. You don't have to worry about any of this, but this is weird. <laughs> what a delightful coincidence. And it turns out that the Patong are gone. 
they're 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 gone. They were dropped. They're driven off by this uh, this mafkin. The uh, the the um, migration caused by uh, Zulu victory, um, and and the settlers were were just thrilled to have this land open to them. But here's the problem: that power vacuum can't really like last that long without somebody eventually filling it, and the ones that end up filling it are another another tribe called the Ndebele. And they are much more hostile than the Batong were. And they decide, ah, this can be our land. That's fine. The Batong are gone. We'll take it. And the settlers are are very soon like in full pitched battle with uh, with the Indabelle. Like it's it's vicious fighting. And this is kind of at the heart of the sort of boar experience, is this like sheer stubbornness to like I don't care how hard it is. I'm going to scrape out a living in this place. I don't care if I have to fight for it. I don't care if it's worse land. I don't care if I'm not being protected by any authorities. I'm putting down my stakes and this is it. This is my place. So in terms of um, like our firearms at this point readily available to indigenous groups or are they? Yes. Um, in fact, that's one of the things that the British have been doing to sort of ingratiate themselves with some of the tribes along the, the borders is trading them firearms for um, both for goods and for favorable uh, treaties. OK, yeah. um, which is another one of those things that the Boers are just livid over. Why would you arm these people? That keeps us from being superior. Yeah, um, they're very worried. And for good reason about We've had a, non-white you know, people having at weapons. At this point, what, like close to 100 years of basically, you know, enforcing a not not nice. Yeah, they're they're not nice hosts. No, not particularly. And yeah, it's 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 over 150 years at this point. So, no, it's it's been it's been a while. Um, that being said, the the Indabele were more um, traditional in their warfare, but, uh, you know, the weapons of this era are not exactly sophisticated when it comes to firearms. You you are you are muzzle loading these things. You okay. are getting off three rounds per minute if you're very good. So there may be not as much of an advantage as you might think. Yeah. And there's not many of them. I mean, yes, we're talking about a lot of people leaving in this great trek, but it's not like all at a time. Like they're not all at once. They're not a, a cohesive group. This is families leaving together in in groups of a couple dozen at a time, maybe. Okay striking out to find sort of their own uh, their own Little way. plot yeah so the fights with the indabelle are are pretty you know pretty harrowing but in 1837 the the uh the boer settlers managed to defeat the indabelle in battle and um basically you know as, as a condition of the defeat that they they the indabelle agree to you know kind of back off a little bit they've they're kind of tail between the legs backing off and the, uh, the settlers decide to found the, the town of Winburg because they won. Okay. <laughs> That's name. a great name. Good name guys. <laughs> these, these settlers end up kind of expanding, uh, all the way from the orange river to, um, uh, another river called the Val river. And they sort of fill this, this, vacuum left by the indabella as they as they leave the region um and and spread out over this farmland and they they end up calling this region uh the orange free state 
uh, after the, the river that they crossed and the freedom that they want, I suppose. Um, the British look at this and they go like, we can't really extend like direct, like government control, like government control over this region. But like, we should probably like defend them and stuff. So they do send like a detachment of soldiers and go like, well, you're here. Like, I, I don't know. We'll try and keep you from getting killed, I guess. Yeah. And the boars kind of resent it, but they'll take the help, I guess. And it's, it's kind of an awkward little situation because the British are recognizing that like, yeah, okay, there's, this is an independent concern going on here, but also we still consider them British subjects and so they deserve our protection, but like we really resent what they're doing, but you know, and, and it's, yeah, I'm surprising they chose to, I guess it's, it's better to have like a, keep an eye on yeah. somebody. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the concern here is that like, this is a colony. They're trying to milk it for all the economic value it possibly has. They don't really want people leaving the colony. Yeah. They want them in the colony, making them money. They also decide to try and limit the scope of this orange free state as much as possible. And to do so, they just go ahead and make a couple of extra treaties. So like, yeah, they'll, they'll make this sort of arrangement with the orange free state, but they also make a, uh, an arrangement with uh, a Griqua tribe. So they've left uh, the Cape colony with their kind of in between legal status and decided to strike it out on their own. And they also make an agreement with uh, a, a Basotho tribe. Um, and these two groups kind of border the Orange Free State and really restrict it from growing any more than it already has. And these territories are like extremely insulting to these people, to the Boers specifically, because they don't want them having guns. They don't want them having treaties with the British. They don't like they, they're so itching to not be contained by any of this. these are the people who just attacked us. And now you've just gone and made a treaty with them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to be fair, they're not actually the people who attacked them, but the distinction is lost on these settlers. Yeah. Let's go back down to Natal, uh, Zulu territory. There is a port Natal. It's just one outpost on the, the coast. It's something that's been there since the, the Portuguese days. And that was about all that the Natal territory was okay. uh, before this. And so this, uh, this Boer leader, Pete Retief, goes down to Port Natal and he starts trying to kind of set things up from there along with his several families that are following him. And over time, they managed to get like a few hundred settlers in that general area. And they figure this is going to actually work out pretty well. And then they encounter the Zulu and the Zulu are not terribly happy to see them. Yeah. There's a lot of question as to what exactly the Zulu thought of the Europeans, mm -hmm. but we are going to learn like a pretty, we're, we're going to get a pretty good general idea of at least what their, their King Dingan thinks of them. Retief decides to, try and contact the Zulu and go listen. Like we just want to, we just want to live here. Like we don't, we don't want any trouble because they're starting to encounter Zulu warriors and get in little skirmishes and they're not too happy about it. Like they don't, they don't actually want trouble. And for what it's worth, I think that's probably true. I think that they're more concerned with getting away from the British than they are of, um, you know, punishing any indigenous people. Yeah. But he gets there and he asks for an audience with, with Dingan, which like the the audacity of that is is staggering. He's just a like he's just a guy, and he's like, "Hey, can I see your king, please?" Yeah. Like, I, I, I 
I, a Dutch settler, would like to speak directly to your king as soon as possible. Thank you. Um, but Dingan agrees. He's, he's going to talk to him. He wants to see this guy face to face. And so Retief is brought in and, and given this, this audience and through interpreters has this conversation with Dingan. And Dingan t- tells him, you know what? You guys seem okay, I guess. So here's what I'm going to do. I have a rival chief and he stole a bunch of my cattle. If you can go off and you can return my cattle and we don't lose a single head of cattle, bring them all back to me. If you do that, I will sign a treaty for uh, with you, giving you enough land for you and your people to settle on. And Retief goes, all right, that, that sounds pretty good. And he takes a raiding party and he goes off searching for these cattle. And eventually he finds them. And there's this raid. He manages to rescue all the cattle, all intact. And he brings them back to Dingan. And Dingan goes, all right, you guys held up your end of the bargain. I'm going to hold up mine. And there's this big ceremony that they all go through of signing this treaty, saying that they're allowed to do whatever they like on their lands. And here's where the borders are going to be. And the Zulu will leave them in peace and this and that. And everybody lived happily ever after. (laughs) Dingan says, tell you what. Let's have a banquet to, cel- uh, to celebrate our new friendship. And Retief goes, banquet sounds good. I like banquets. And he goes, bring your whole raiding party with you to this banquet. Um, there is a Zulu rule. Uh, no weapons at banquets. We're here to eat, not fight. And, Dingan, er, and, uh, and Retief goes, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, no. The command that, that Dingan gives... Uh, for his warriors to turn on Retief and his party is um, in Zulu means seize the wizards. The speculation is that he believed that there was some sort of supernatural power uh, behind the Europeans, whether that uh, amounts to the firearms that they carried, whether that has something to do with uh, their appearance. I, I don't know. The, the speculation, again, is, is a little bit um, uncertain, but he he did not trust them in the least. I personally wonder if he expected the, the cattle to be unrecoverable. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. But the warriors turn on Retief, kill him and his party. And then... They go off and they uh, kill their uh, women and children. And this is something that the Boers have never encountered before. The Kosa would never kill women and children. Raiding parties, absolutely, but only men. This was um, this was a big turning point for uh, the relationship with uh, uh, between the Zulu and, and the Boers for obvious reasons. But it was also a massive blow to... Um, the the Boer settlers because that 250 people is that's a, that's that's a, lot, a lot of people. people. Dingan decided to not. He's not gonna he's not gonna wait around. He's not gonna see what happens with these settlers. He doesn't trust them, and I think that is undisputable based on what just happened. Um, he he sees absolutely no reason to trust them. He marches on the Boer settlement with 15,000 warriors. The Battle of Blood River takes place. 16th of December, 1838. These 15,000 warriors go up against about 470 men on the Boer side, led by Andres Pretorius. 
the Boers managed to win it. How? They are dug in. They have cannons. They have guns. Um, and the amount of casualties that the Zulu were willing to take in this whole engagement was not terribly high. Now, if you read contemporary accounts, you might get the impression that the Boers killed thousands of these warriors. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. There were other encounters with, you know, massive numbers of Zulu warriors where, um, you know, out of, out of tens of thousands, you know, maybe a hundred, uh, maybe a few hundred were killed less than a thousand before they turned and, and fled. Um, you know, I, I, I saw numbers as high as like, you know, we killed 9,000 out of the 15,000. Mm, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. That being said, it is a significant defeat for Dingan because there's really no reason he should have lost that battle. Yeah. He probably should have known at least somewhat what these settlers were capable of. And I don't care how bad your weapons are, that sort of numerical superiority should be enough to do it. Yeah. You have 30 times as many men. So what, what specifically, like, just the entrenchment and the positioning was just too difficult to overcome? Or? Basically. I mean, the, the Zulu tactics are, uh, at this point in time, are kind of similar to um, what you would see out of, like, a like sort of classical Greek era how um, more guys tactics. than the other guy? Well, not just that, but bunch them close together and form a shield wall. Which is terrible against cannon fire. and Correct. Yeah. Um, also, their shields were uh, stretched hide, which doesn't degrade against uh, musket bullets. Yeah. So they, they were fairly defenseless. Um, range is kind of the, the one word answer to, to your question. Um, that and Dingan was never really that strong a military commander. The military uh, talent all kind of went to Shaka and he was no longer around. So, yeah, be that as it may, um, the the Battle of Blood River is won by the Boers. And they're feeling pretty good about their position in Natal at this point because, like, they kind of know they should have probably died there. That's a that's a pretty good high they got going on. Yeah. They return to Port Natal, they're all victorious. They've won this battle only to discover that the British have locked down the port. Oh, lovely. It is technically a British port. And well, their, their line to the, the Boers was that they didn't want the Zulu to get the port. In reality, I kind of think they just didn't want the Boers to have access to the sea. Because remember, a lot of the concerns that are happening here, even if we kind of want to put it through a bit of a moral lens, a lot of the concerns that are happening here are economic. And if the Boers have a, a, a port on the Indian Ocean, that's a huge market that they've got open to them. And they could potentially achieve a level of economic uh, independence that Britain isn't necessarily willing to uh, tolerate. Yeah. So they're hoping that, that by keeping these Boer colonies inland, um, Maybe they'll just forget about this whole silly independence thing and come back, make Britain more money. The Zulu, meanwhile, are splintered by this defeat. Uh, internally, the politics are just, you know. Chaos. Well, I mean, they they also know that Dingan never should have lost this fight. And it's seized upon as a moment of weakness. Everything we've seen so far of the Zulu suggests that usurpation is is 
kind of more common as a as a method of getting the throne than than uh, hereditary means. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's been a lot of backstabbing going on. Um, the main contender against Dingan is that one half brother that he left alive. It's a guy named uh, Mpande, and he decides that. And I, I really do want to impress just how radical a move this is. Mpande goes to Pretorius and asks for help in overthrowing Dingan. Oh. That is not how this place works. It is a big move. Pretorius agrees on the condition that if Mpande is successful, that the boars get a lot of land for themselves. That's that's all he wants. Leave us alone. Give us lots of land. I don't care what you guys are doing up there. Leave us alone. Give us land. Mpande agrees. And so there is a giant battle just a couple months later, uh, January 29th, 1840. And at this battle, Dingan is killed, which installs Mpande as king. And... Okay. Uh, Natal, Natalia, the Natalia Republic extends northwards drastically because Mpande makes good on his agreement. So Natal becomes like fairly, fairly large geographically. It's a lot of this former um, Zulu territory, not all of it, but a good chunk. And it's seen as like a very viable uh, alternative to the Orange Free State at this point. It's not hemmed in by these uh, British allies. Um, it is very like clearly held by um, Boers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems to be off to a little bit better start. Pretorius is seen as a very strong leader because he's won two very key battles for them. And so, yeah, Natal becomes like the next place. They officially apply for independence from Britain at this point because they're kind of going like, what are you guys even doing for us? We've yeah. like, we've won this place. This is our place. Um, the only reason your name is on this is because you inherited a port from the Dutch. You've barely even kept ships there. People just kind of pass through once in a while. There's no one there. And Britain kind of goes, eh, well, eh, I don't know about that. They sort of offer this kind of political and economic um, independence in, in exchange for British military protection. So basically they want their troops there, but they'll let them form their own kind parliament. Of, yeah, have and, their own autonomy and that kind of thing. And Natal begrudgingly accepts because they may be able to fight off Zulu, but they're not so sure that they can hold off Redcoats. Yeah. Um, however, one of the first things that that newly formed government does is send off messages to the Netherlands asking for help in establishing independence. Hmm. They figure, and I mean, it's been some time. It hasn't been that long. They figure, well, maybe we still have some sympathizers in the Netherlands. Uh, can give us a hand with all of this. The British go like, what, what are you, what are you doing? You can't just do this. And again, drawing on those lessons from North America go, we can't have a war of independence on our hands. Yeah. And in 1843, they just outright annex Natal, basically to save face. Not even because they want it, but because they don't want an independence movement on their hands. Britain is becoming very overextended in this whole period. 
there's a lot of stuff going on with the population in South Africa, which is far more independent there than they were really expecting and far more different than they were expecting um, for them to really keep a good grasp on uh, the local situation. And they're losing control and they're spiraling a little bit. Like you can really see it. They keep extending troops out further and further, trying to hold these regions that they don't even need. They don't even want. Yeah. But it's just to keep control of these people. They don't want another United States on their hands. As soon as Britain annexes Natal, the Boers leave again, mostly for Orange Free State. Um, and it's 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 more than five hundred families leave Natal. There's a few left, but like most of them just up and leave. Basically, all of them leave. They haven't been there that long. They're not that tied to the region. They feel like as soon as the annexation occurs. Like, everything they fought for is basically gone anyway, so what's the point in sticking around? Yeah. Uh, Orange Free State is there. Let's go. Um, And when they get to Orange Free State, these same leaders start agitating for independence in Orange Free State. Remember, they were in that kind of hazy, sort of in-between situation there, too. And it's these same leaders. So, 1845, they're uh, agitating for independence in in Orange Free State. And... It actually comes to conflict with British troops, minor skirmishes, like nothing, nothing huge, but shots are exchanged. The administration of Orange Free State is put under full British control. Again, they're just trying to lock all these down, right? But it's like stop some sort of terrible, bloody revolution. Well, it's just this game of whack-a-mole, right? Like every time they try and lock one place down, the boars pop up somewhere else and they're just trying to get a a handle on it and it's not working. This this direct government control, like they, they install a British governor in 1848, and that's that's it for a lot of the families again. And this time they decide we're not running. We're going to stand and fight. That stubbornness streak is back. Yes. And but like it, it switches right between that whole like, fine, we're taking our ball and we're going home and, you know, we're going to make a stand for this. And this time they're making a stand. And it's Pretorius at the head of the charge again. Um there's a battle. Uh, it's, it's called the Battle of Boomplatz, uh, 29th of August, 1848. And the Boers are defeated. They can't, I, I mean, these are, it's not even a, it's not an army. They're not, they're not professional soldiers. These are homesteaders. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. They're fearsome fighters. These are people who have grown up needing to defend land from people who really probably should actually be occupying the land. But you know, they're, they're used to fighting for the place that they are. Um, and, but it's still from a disadvantage compared to the trained British militiamen, right? Like it's, there is no match. Like in this era, there is no matching a British regular for sheer, like in, in on mass for sheer fighting power, there is no better trained army in the world. Um, they are fearsome foes and the Boers are, you know, in general, incredible shots very good hunters very flexible in terms of tactics they're not going to line up for you they're not going to do the whole you know march in a column and turn and fire thing they are going to hide in bushes and trees and they are going to fire from wherever they can get cover so they're fearsome but they don't have the numbers not now anyone who couldn't stand to live under british control leaves again this time they they establish um, it's it's known as the South African Republic, but that gets kind of confusing with the modern South African Republic. This state is is often referred to as Transvaal, 
it just means around the Val River, but it gets referred to so often by that name that I'm just going to use that for clarity's sake. Um, it's, it's a fairly well-known designation for this area. And the British finally decided, like, what are we, what are we doing here? Transvaal is garbage land. There's nothing there. It's all veld. Like, it's, it's, it's just, it's all interior dry grasslands. There's nothing of any, any, uh, value here. All we're doing is just killing our own soldiers and killing our people. And why? Like, what's, what's the point of that? They're not going to stop. Every time we do this, they're going to keep going. So there's a reversal of British policy. And in 1852, they decide, fine, we, we, we've got to stop this. Everything north of the Transvaal River, we'll just give to the Boers. They can have it. They can do what they want with it. Everything south of it, uh, that is British land. This is known as the Sand River Convention. Um, there's a few other provisions that go into it. The British are not allowed to make treaties with any other groups north of the trans or north of the Val River either, meaning that they can't box them in. They can't box them in. And what's more, any agreements that they've made before now with groups north of the Transvaal River, they have to uh, nullify. So they've just left a bunch of al- uh, uh, allies uh, high and dry. Yeah. Twisting in the wind. They're not allowed to sell specifically. They're not allowed to sell weapons or other goods to any of these groups, even if they don't have a, an official treaty. In return, Transvaal is not allowed to practice slavery. Transvaal goes, yeah, no, definitely, and signs the papers and goes right back to using slaves. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, like, one one year later, <laughs> it's actually a name you would you would know, um, David Livingston, uh, 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 a British. Uh, missionary comes through south africa this is very early on in his career this is the dr livingston i presume guy that's all most people really know about him but he was he was a missionary and he was involved in exploring africa um in in this in this era i mean he was doing some missionary work with groups that were north of the transvaal or north of the val river and transvaal went whoa 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 what are you doing you're not allowed to trade with these groups and britain went well you're not allowed to have slaves and you guys are doing that. And Transvaal went, whoa, wait, we can't help what like some fringe criminal groups are doing in our state. Mm-hmm. And Britain went, well, he's just one guy. So like what, what harm is there? What, what do we, what do we do in here? Like you want to get picky about it? We'll get picky about it too. But you've still got all these troops in Cape or in, in Cape Colony. So, and, and everyone kind of like backed off again, but there was almost this like international, uh, snafu incident over over David Livingston, um, who was just just there to spread the word. I mean, he wasn't. He didn't mean any harm. He just wants to talk about Jesus. That's all. That's all. Just let him be. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, they continued practicing slavery in uh, violation of their of their agreements. So, in 1854, the British decided to similarly give Orange Free State its independence under kind of similar terms. They also at the same time decided to give Cape Colony uh its own locally elected legislature. Okay. Um kind of modeled under uh, on the same um system as as Canada was using at the time. Um it's notable that this was a multiracial system. Uh, you didn't have to be white European to be elected to the legislature. So they were still really pushing that for the time, fairly progressive, uh, racial agenda in South Africa with the independence of orange free state. There was actually a, a brief 
uh, war between Transvaal and Orange Free State. Transvaal wanted to incorporate Orange Free State into, um, you know, into one uh, bigger state. And Orange Free State kind of went, we'll do our own thing. Thanks. And yeah, there was some border skirmishes. Nothing really came of it. Um, I suppose you could say that Orange Free State won since it continued to be. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't, it, it was more sort of the kind of painful start of two different states. Okay. It's kind of how things like that tend to shake out. Um, once each had established itself as a, a sovereign power, as it were, um, things settled down between the two states. Borders stabilized. Uh, Cape Colony stabilized a little bit. Um, Cape Colony had been at war with the Cosa on and off on that eastern border for decades. There's there's nine or ten different wars that are listed as discrete wars, but are really kind of a continuation of the same conflict happening throughout uh, British rule uh, in this area, with the Cosa territory getting smaller and smaller. Um, Things got even more stable in the uh, in the 1850s when uh, a uh, an apocalyptic prophet arose among the Kosa. Uh, it's this 16 uh, year old girl, Nongkwawose, um, who said that she had a vision that if they all, everyone, all the Kosa, killed all of their livestock at the same time, the ghosts of their ancestors would come up, drive out the the colonists revive all of their livestock oh, so they had food to eat like a bad idea and they'd be saved and her ideas gained enough traction that like the leaders of the cosa decided that they should probably listen to her and so between 1856 and 1858 the cosa slaughtered basically their entire food source and no ghosts of ancestors appeared to help them out and no cattle were revived to feed them and so the population really kind of collapsed on its own accord um oh that's brutal which yeah is 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 absolutely tragic um it yeah in 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 the coldest kind of calculus of the whole thing it helped stabilize the region because fighting died down significantly the cosa couldn't fight but yeah the borders kind of settled into a good rhythm and the colonies all sort of settled into a good rhythm and the free states all settled into a good rhythm and then one of the worst things that ever happened to south africa happened uh which is that in 1866 uh near the orange river a massive deposit of diamonds was discovered really i've never heard of this part really no this is going to be pretty much the rest of our episode but before we get into it i think we should take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk diamonds here on hi 101 with gary hallman hello back to diamonds back to diamonds it's kind of like it's kind of like this whole region has just had a really rough ride huh yeah yeah absolutely you know we were just uh in the break saying it's you know, it's just one one calamity after another where it's like, oh, man, like, you know, all throughout history, like, what could be the worst possible thing yeah. to happen in a region um, with, you know, pretty, pretty tense ethnic violence? Like, oh, like, yeah, there's a large deposit of money just sitting here. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well at all. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I think I think when you zoom in on any 
area close enough you're gonna find like the same sort of like it, it just like things just keep coming up right like there's very few places where you get that whole um what's that anecdote from like the bbc in like 1926 or whatever it is where they they said you know today nothing happened and then played some piano music or whatever yeah that's not a thing that really happens like there's always something going on there's there's always tensions all over the place and the further back you go the the worse they get kind of thing right and to ignite those tensions you just need you just need a match you just need an excuse yeah yeah and and you know to be fair i think i think this 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 area of the world had you know more than the average going on there's there's a lot of stuff happening here but um yeah to throw diamonds into the mix conflict with diamonds in africa the um the reserve that's found the problem with it is that it's right near the orange river and it's at this cross point where the territory could be claimed by the Orange Free State, or it could be claimed by Transvaal, or it could be claimed by the Griqua Nation, who had some independent territory in this area. And it's just close enough that like they require arbitration. And who's going to arbitrate a case like this in the region? Well, probably the British. The British. They turn to Cape Colony. And it's arbitrated by Cape Colony with like representatives from Natal there to keep things fair, which yeah, Natal is just more Britain, right? Um, now, to, to be clear about like the, the relationship there, Cape Colony is technically independent under the British Empire, right? Like it has it, it has its own uh, government, its own local government. Um, Natal is very much like a, it's, it's a colony, it's a crown colony. So there is some separation there, but basically you've got a conflict being uh, arbitrated by Crown Colony with British oversight. So it's Britain overseeing Britain. And they, after going through, you know, where it is, the claims by all the parties, et cetera, et cetera, decide to award it to the Greek nation. I'm kind of not surprised about that. I mean, I don't know enough about where it's located geographically to say whether or not that's necessarily it's a the... nice little finger in the eye of people who have yeah. been spending the last, you know, how many years sticking the finger in your eye. I, I feel like they would have had a hard time actually going, you know what, Transvaal, this is for you. The Greek nation turns around and goes, what have you done to us? This is the worst thing you could possibly do. The Boers are going to tr- turn around and they're going to annex us so fast over these diamonds. Please help. And the British go, sure. And they annex the Greek nation in 1877, um, providing military support and uh, and defense for these new diamond mines at, at a, a, a mining town that comes up called Kimberley. Um, they call this uh, this 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 territory uh Greekland, and it, it becomes a, a british territory and in in true height of the 19th century imperialist fashion the greek would get absolutely no benefit from this whatsoever they're not really paid anything for this territory uh they get no economic benefit for the mineral deposits there so like they get no mineral rights over these diamonds yeah um basically if you don't like privately owned land that diamonds are on or get in on the ground floor on the di- in the diamond industry as a Greekwa, you're not getting anything here british interests however are getting a lot 
the reason I said before that I was surprised that you hadn't heard of diamonds in South Africa is because at this point in history, 95% of diamonds were coming from these deposits. Really? Yes. The world's diamonds are coming from these mines. It must have been just a monstrously huge deposit. Yes. It's, it's, it's massive. Well, I mean, they're, they're still mining diamonds in South Africa. Um, the whole, you know, whole blood diamond thing. Yep. Uh, yep. Yep. Sure is not exclusively Africa, uh, South Africa, but definitely partly. Um, it makes um, Cape Colony incredibly wealthy. There are other deposits that are found um, that sort of add to this, but like the mining industry takes off. Um, and it's still strong to this day. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the point in time when uh, De Beers is founded. Okay. Um, right. It is founded by um, men who are getting very, very rich off of these mines. They they they, they found a... a conglomerate to control diamond trade across the world de beers is like it's kind of its own thing um in terms of like subjects to talk about i mean we could oh it's so interesting the way yeah control diamond trade to maximize profitability and yeah well i mean they've they've spent their entire um you know the entire lifespan of this company um controlling diamond trade to like like to to the decimal point like they will go around and when new deposits are found um what they'll do is they've had basically 150 years to mine and stockpile diamonds and they trickle them out onto the market to maintain a high value they've got all these diamonds in just warehouses of diamonds because if you flood the market with too many diamonds they'll get too cheap yeah, and they won't make drop the money. price every time a new diamond deposit is found here's what de beers does First thing they do is go, hey, congratulations on your find. You want to join the De Beers group? And now you have two options. You say yes, and now you're giving a lot of money to De Beers to be part of their buying group. Or you say no, and they go, okay, no problem. Then they look at your mine. And I mean, diamonds come in so many grades, right? Like there's there's a lot of stuff going on with, with grading and classifying diamonds. They look at your mine and what's coming out of it. And they go, what kind of diamond is this specific mine producing? And then they flood the market with that specific type of diamond. So it's virtually worthless to you. And they don't care because they're still making money off the all, all the other types of diamonds. If you just found like the greatest industrial diamond mine of, of history, De Beers doesn't care. They're going to drop that price so fast. And if you've got actual gem quality diamonds, you're still not going to make as much as you think unless you join De Beers. Up until 2013, I think it was something like 90% of the world's diamonds were coming from the De Beers group. It's only within the last few years that uh, enough companies have started making a stand against this uh, monopoly to start reducing its impact on the world's diamond market. Well, there's quite a bit of Canadian diamond mining now. A lot of which is owned by De Beers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've got a big uh, uh, office in Mississauga. Yep. Yep. No, it's uh, it's a... it's it's a fascinating industry, but it comes from this uh, this this initial real monopoly on the market. Before this, you know, the, the the diamond wasn't necessarily considered like as high class as it is now. A lot of that is De Beers marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Diamonds are forever. That slogan was put in place in 1947. It's created. It's it's considered by some to be the greatest advertising slogan of the 20th century. Um, not only because it's a 
very good slogan, but also because of like the impact it's had on the consumer market. Um, our idea of the worth of a diamond is, uh, heavily controlled by the De Beers group. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Diamond engagement rings. De Beers basically invented them. Yeah. 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 I remember. I remember. So basically at this point you've got, is De Beers still kind of set up in this town of Kimberly? Yeah. Like is yep. this still where the big hub is? I'm not sure where their, their office is in South Africa. I would imagine they'd move to Johannesburg by now, but I'm sure they have something at Kimberly. They, uh, well, they, they tore that town, you know, pieces. down to the roots, but, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have something there commemorating the trillions of dollars they've made from its bones. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, enough about De Beers for right now. They're making so much money that the British government goes, this isn't a colony anymore. We're not supporting it financially. They're able to pay for their own support through their exports. This is great. We wanted to focus on India anyways. Have you heard of tea? There's a whole bunch of good stuff going on there. <laughs> Enough about diamonds. So 1872 Cape Colony gets responsible government status. So this is basically the same spot that uh, Canada was at um, around this era. You know, it's it's technically independent. It's part of the Commonwealth, but, um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's a crown colony. It's just self-governing and self-financing. It's paying for itself in taxes. Um, it has uh, uh, some amount of like devolved government to make uh, uh, locally relevant laws, okay. while still, you know, constitutional level uh, laws. So they'll still to have be... like a pretty active governor general at this point. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, I mean, and, and so did Canada. I mean, that's yeah. that's one thing. We're off topic here, but it's one thing people don't really realize about Canada is that. We, we kind of go with that 1867 year on, on independence. Uh, we didn't even have the, um, the ability to uh, change our constitution without British assent until the 30s, like until the 1930s. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of degrees of separation with the, the British Empire. It takes a while to fully pull away. Yep. In and around this time, Britain started becoming more concerned. Now that the Kosa are less of a problem now, they're, they're basically done at this point. Um, they start becoming concerned about Zulu growth again. They've started they've started growing again and uh they're a little worried because this time they they have some firearms and the british know about them but they never actually directly encountered them and it's one of those things where the stories are a little bit bigger maybe than the truth necessarily yeah what they do know is that they can field a lot of soldiers a lot of soldiers in 1877 they decide to annex Transvaal as a protective measure, or that's the excuse that they're using. Oh, the Zulus are coming. We need to protect you. They've just kind of finally defeated the Kosa. They're moving on to the, the Zulu. And honestly, they kind of just want Transvaal. Yeah. This puts Transvaal in like a really awkward position because if they resist the British... Then they're just going to, one, can't beat the British, two, have to deal with the Zulu. Mm -hmm. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Rock, um, rock meat, hard place. Yeah, pretty much. Um, put it better than that could have. So they, they accept, with giant air quotes, um, <laughs> British control, but really they didn't have a, a, ch a choice in the whole thing. British commanders then go ahead and start forcing border issues with Zulus. They start... Um, infringing on zulu borders intentionally 
trying to provoke uh, a response while at the same time basically sending ultimatums to Zulu leadership uh, that they know that the Zulus can't really comply with. There's a defensive force in Natal that is technically only allowed to be used for defensive purposes, but the British are hoping that if they provoke the Zulu into it, into attacking, they can use that force without needing royal assent um, to destroy the Zulu. The Zulu king at the time, uh, Keshwayo, tries desperately to avoid warfare. He doesn't want to fight the British. He knows better. He knows he can't take them. Um, and commands his forces to only act defensively, never uh, never enter Natal, uh, put up with demands as much as possible, all of this. But eventually, there are British uh, claims that Zulus have uh, uh, crossed border lines and, uh, you know, this is unacceptable. We need to defend Natal. They, they force a war with the Zulu. Uh, beginning in 1878, uh, the British take 25,000 men into Zulu territory. Sorry. It's only 15,000 the first time. They go in with 15,000 men. The Zulu are able to field about 35,000 at this point in time. And they have some weaponry, but like it's it's a lot of traditional uh, spears and uh, clubs and yep. shields rather than firearms, whereas the British have the best weapons money can buy at this point. This is the first conflict that sees the entry of the Gatling gun, for example. Um, they're well-equipped. The 15,000 are repulsed by the Zulu. Hmm. Britain's very good at fighting in open fields. They're having some trouble in this era with fighting... Skirmishes? Uh, like Yeah, any any uh, fighting against any guerrilla tactics, fighting in any um, non-traditional fields of battle. The second time they take 25,000 men into that territory against, uh, uh, against the Zulu, and it's a bitter fight but they finally managed to defeat the zulu uh in 1879 and they kill the king and basically mandate that there can't be a united zulu kingdom anymore um so there are sort of there's about 13 different tribes uh under the zulu king banner and basically they they uh um devolve all the power back to these tribal groups and say you guys aren't allowed to unite with each other anymore you know here's your little parcels of land you can do whatever you want on them i don't want to see you guys colluding anymore again it took twenty-five thousand british troops to pull this off that's the end of shaka zulu's dynasty it's actually a fairly short period of time it's uh um you know it's really only 70 years or so they managed to make a pretty big splash, and a lot of that is because they managed to resist the British forces at the height of the empire, mm-hmm. which is no mean feat. No, not at all. They were fearsome warriors. With the Zulu gone, the Boers in Transvaal start getting a little restless. Fancy. The Zulu are gone. Why are you guys still here? And the British drag their feet on a little bit and drag their feet on a little bit. And finally, Transvaal gets done with it, as they have so many times in the past. Um, They declare independence from Britain. 16th of December, 1880. And Britain goes, hang on, you can't do that. 
And the Boers go, no, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We got this. Orange Free State comes out in support of Transvaal. So they're going to support them in the war. This is what's known as the first Anglo-Boer War. Um, a lot of times you hear people talk about the Boer War. That's actually the second yeah. Boer War. Um, it goes by a number of different names. I'm just going to use first and second Boer Wars because that's the tradition we come from. Um, and that's usually what you, you find them listed in, uh, listed as in, in history books. But, um, if you were to be reading a history in South Africa, you might see these as, uh, the war of independence, things like that. It's, it's, uh, they, they go by a number of different names. There's about 700 Boer troops. Now there are those 25,000 British troops in Natal, but they're not allowed to leave Natal. It's self-defense force. It's a self-defense force. The British have about 1700 troops in the area this gets called a war there's like 2000 soldiers total it's a pretty small war that's why it doesn't generally get talked about that much but here's the thing those 700 boer troops are so effective against the 1700 british ones that they hold the war handily against them no mean feat this tradition of hunting and marksmanship among the boars is at its very best among, you know, during this war. Um, it, it was the kind of thing like gun culture, uh, at this point in time was at the level of, you know, if you went to a family gathering on like a Sunday afternoon kind of thing, there would be a shooting contest hmm. and the shooting contest would be put an egg on a post over a hundred yards away. First one to hit it wins. Wouldn't take long to get broken. They're very good. They also know the land. Now the British in this era are still marching in red coats and blue trousers. These Boer soldiers, well, number one, they're militia, not soldiers. And number two, they're not dumb enough to be walking around the veldt in bright red jackets. So they're wearing khakis. They're blending in with the surroundings. They're not forming lines. Again, trees and bushes. They're creeping up on uh, on British emplacements um, very carefully using cover and making every shot count. Yeah. They outfought them so significantly. Um, the best example of this is uh, a battle known as the Battle of Majuba Hill. There were 500 British soldiers. They're at the top of a hill, like on top of a hill, which is where you want to be when you're fighting a battle. The Boers crept up on them from from below. There were maybe four to five hundred Boers. They were maybe at even numbers against British regulars. There were a handful of casualties on the Boer side. Less than a dozen. Out of those 500 British, 92 were killed, 194 were wounded, and 59 were captured before they uh, retreated finally. A lot of the failure of the British forces in this war kind of get put down to command. It wasn't terribly effectively run. Uh, the guy wasn't able to be court-martialed because he was killed during the fighting. But, um, you know, it's also one of those things where it's a little bit easy to blame the dead guy for all the failures. Oh, so, absolutely. Um, the thing that matters here, though, is that Transvaal was successful. This was the first treaty that Britain signed under unfavorable circumstances since the War of Independence in the United States. 23rd March, 1881, they signed a peace treaty. They, the Boers trade self-governance for basically British suzerainty. So they, they, they're a 
client state of Britain, basically. Technically, they, they, they agreed to go along with Britain in international matters in okay. terms of uh, voting, in terms of support. There's a, you know, they kind of become like a crown colony-ish, but with a promise of um, no British involvement, basically. They're more or less happy with that, all things considered, especially because really all that needs to happen for them to lose this war really badly is for a boat to get back from Britain saying, yeah, that defense force can be used against those <laughs> few hundred men. But they won it. This is a victory for them. Let's talk about South Africa's very unfortunate mineral rights again. I think this this whole thing was really strongly embodied by a man named Cecil John Rhodes, who was raised in South Africa since he was 17. He moved there because he was in poor health and this family thought that the climate might agree with him. Um, it's a very mid-19th century yeah. thing to do. Um, Sounds like the beginning of a journey. A journey towards the worst you know, aspects of mid-19th century British imperialism. <laughs> Um, he was an avowed imperialist. He loved the British Empire. He thought it was uh, the right thing to do to assert dominion over uh, those he saw as lesser peoples. This was this is peak white man's burden. He got very very rich off of the diamond trade. Very 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 rich. Uh, he was actually one of the uh, initial founders of De Beers. Okay. Um, using uh, Rothschild funding, actually. Oh. So yeah, there's some some Rothschild money in there. Um, when it was when De Beers was founded in 1888. Just to give you an idea of like the the level of like British imperialism we're talking about. Have you ever heard of the state of Rhodesia? Yes. Yeah. Uh, today it's uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe kind of more or less um it's named after cecil rhodes oh wow he made his own state that's pretty rich it's pretty rich and pretty imperialist yeah yeah in 1886 in transvaal unambiguously in transvaal there's no question about it this time a massive vein of gold is found massive vein of gold uh so massive that we're talking 25% of the world's gold production. Whew. South Africa's rich. Yeah. Again, it just also brings forth all the worst qualities in people. There's the worst amount of, you know, squabbling over these rocks in the ground. And, and it brings out the worst imperialist tendencies in people. This idea from men like Rhodes that the natives won't know what to do with this. You know, it, it takes our guiding yeah. hand to show them. The savage Dutch. It's it's well, and but not not just the not just the Dutch, but also uh, every non-white person in the region. Yeah. Um, the diamonds and the gold basically spark what's known now as the scramble for Africa. This is the, the these are two of the very major catalysts for these European powers in the in the late 19th century, basically taking a map of your, uh, of, of Africa and drawing lines across it, carving it so up. So this is when like the Germans really start to get in yep. Belgians, especially the Belgians in the Congo. That's, that's a, a whole other topic, but the, the level of cruelty that was exhibited there is, is just unreal and more people should be aware of just how terribly those people were treated. But yeah, this is, this is where the French take, you know, vast portions of Africa under their control. And it's this it's this weird set piece that's kind of a a product in the way of late 19th century diplomacy in Europe where, you know, they don't actually want to fight. So in instead they trade pieces of Europe like, 
you know, like poker chips yeah. in these, in these alliances and hope that these kind of imaginary lines, uh, number one, uh, keep everyone from going to war and number two might pay off somehow someday because it sure did for the Britain for Britain down in, uh, in the Cape colony, everyone's eyeing South Africa and going, I want, I want my diamond mine. I want my gold mine. Oh, it's just like South America, right? Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Spanish get all this silver and gold and everybody starts, you know, Oh wow. Yep. We should, we should get ourselves a new continent. That, that looks great. I'll take one, please. Yeah, exactly. The city of Johannesburg springs up overnight around these gold mines. It's a, it's a mining town. It, it didn't exist before this gold was found, but yeah, ev- everyone just, everyone just wants a slice. Um, Rhodes ends up actually becoming prime minister of Cape Colony in 1890. And I think his tenure as prime minister kind of highlights how far away from that initial tendency towards rights for non-white Cape colonists, how far away from that we've we've come. Okay. Because he starts significantly eroding uh, rights for, for uh, non-white uh, colonists. And... Uh, everyone's pretty okay with it at least everyone that's in a position of power yeah um it's kind of being seen as you know there's a very very giant pie going around but the bigger of a slice i can get of it the better Mm -hmm. um so the best way to do this is to deny others theirs if if south africa had had a chance to sort of avoid some of the racial tensions that it seemed kind of destined to be uh headed for from the outset um, those 1830s attempts to, you know, relax the uh, the number of things against non-white South Africans, that was probably the best chance they had. And with uh, with men like Rhodes coming into power, uh, a lot of that went away again. The, okay. the you know the wealth that was discovered there really put a damper on um, any any hope for uh, rights until basically the 1990s, um, and even then, very arguably. But that's a little too modern for us. This gold in Transvaal. Transvaal didn't have the manpower to extract it. It's a quarter of the world's gold. Transvaal was not that big. What's more, they didn't really have the know-how. Yeah, finding gold and, and learning how to build mine shafts and all that kind of stuff sounds pretty specialized. Yeah, yeah. The finding the gold is one thing. Figuring out how to get it out of the ground is is a very different one. And so they're stuck in like a really difficult spot here because... I mean, Cape Colony is eyeing it, and they've only just become independent again after the first Anglo-Boer War. Uh-oh. Transvaal's in a little bit of trouble. So they decide they're going to allow foreign immigration, specifically for the mining industry. However, most of the specialists that end up coming in are British. Britain knows a thing or two about mining. They've been very good at it. So the, the vast majority of the actual manual labor for both the diamond and gold mines end up being non-white South Africans. It's fairly low pay. It's incredibly dangerous. And um, uh, Europeans generally aren't willing to do it. It's jobs that more marginalized members of society kind of end up stuck with. And it's dangerous work. And it makes a lot of other people a lot of money. (laughs) This, This immigration, though, the Boers are becoming a little bit worried about becoming a minority in their own state, basically. And so they start putting restrictions on voting rights. Um, 
not allowing them to become full citizens, uh, putting restrictions on, you know, amount of wealth they're able to generate, um, you know, claim ownerships, things like that. There's like a waiting period before you can even get basic civil rights. Okay. And Britain in kind of a, kind of a show of like righteous indignation is going like, Hey, you need to treat your citizens better than that. They, they want the exact thing that Transvaal is afraid of, right? Yeah. But it's done under this guise of like... Moral superiority. Yeah, yeah. Hey, do, do, the, do the right thing civically. Um, and I mean, Rhodes is right up there with, with the, the British on all of this. They're, he, he's railing against, his, against the people in, in Transvaal. How dare they treat people this way? Meaning while he's getting very, Just very rich bad. off of the labor of non-whites colony uh colony citizens he decides to take matters into his own hands which is a very cecil rhodes thing to do and he orders about 600 people out of rhodesia uh mostly police and orders them to march on johannesburg and he says just overthrow the government there real quick well they'll they'll they're they're boars they'll 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 topple after that happens no problem this is known as the um the jameson raids it's badly botched it's so very badly botched. Those 600 men are taken prisoner by the Boers who go, what are you guys doing here? No, that's not how this works. And basically sent them back to Britain as prisoners of war and said, try these men. Um, they were illegally in our country and they could have started a war. You might want to do something about it. Rhodes gets a little bit of egg on his face and it's actually quite disastrous for Rhodesia because they lost the vast majority of their policing uh, force in that raid yeah you can't just get those people back overnight no um there's a an indebele uprising with no cops in in rhodesia and they barely managed to suppress it they nearly lost the state the leader of this uh uprising leander star jameson uh served uh, a little over a year in jail for the whole thing came back to cape colony hailed as a hero he would later become uh, prime minister yeah. uh the people loved him he was actually considered uh one of the founding fathers of the modern south african state um i'm sure to the joy of all of its dutch citizens yep britain's still eyeing all of these well all of that gold let's be real all about what stuff. this is let's be real about what this is all about it's about the gold that has made taking transvaal worth it the history of that state has been back and forth. Is it worth is it worth the trouble of Britain committing military resources to control this territory? And now it's very yes, the calculus has changed. Absolutely. Again, 25% of the world's gold. That's that's a lot of money. They really want that money. Money's good. They continue to agitate for rights and blah blah blah, a bunch of pompous pretense basically um but the boars know what's up they're not fooled by any of this and they decide you know what maybe war is coming we should maybe do something about this they start prepping for war in uh uh basically in 1897 their their president uh a man named paul kruger starts modernizing the army he buys uh he buys so many rifles he he goes with like brand new best of the best like 1895 mausers which is like still considered one of the best like bolt action era rifle military rifles ever made um he buys millions of rounds of ammo 
from the Germans, they're more than willing to sell to a, a competitor of the. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why not? Um, this is that era of sort of military escalation before World War One, where they're not really fighting, but they're kind of enemies already. So they're well prepared, at least in in terms of their um, uh, their outfitting. They they buy a bunch of artillery, like very modern stuff, and they get good with it. Then in uh, 1899, October 11th, um, Transvaal and uh, along with Orange Free State uh, preemptively strike into into Cape Colony. Um, the Boers are able to field around 33,000 men, which is a That's pretty sizable, sizable force. force. The British can get about 13,000. But here's the thing. The Boers hit three places. They hit Ladysmith. Ladysmith is where the bulk of the British forces are are garrisoned. They put it under siege. So those troops cannot move out of there. They hit Mafking. Mafking is a rail crossing, which is the like it's kind of the main artery for uh, the Cape Colony. Uh, most trains would go through Mafking, and if they control Mafking, they can keep the British from moving troops and supplies very easily. Mm-hmm. Hold down Mafking and the garrison that's there. And the third force goes to Kimberley, the diamond mines. I'm going to take one more shot at Rhodes because why not? I, I don't feel anything. <laughs> I don't feel bad for taking shots at this guy at all. He's no longer prime minister at this point. He's back in Kimberley overseeing his diamond mines. Uh, when the shells start falling, he takes shelter in a very small bunker that he's had built for himself. And he allows all of the white people in Kimberley to take refuge in the diamond mines where it's safe. Non-white people are not allowed into the mines. Cool guy. Yikes. This first phase is actually like very effective um, military uh, uh, maneuvers by the Boers. They they like, they made very smart moves tactically. They seem like you know there's been enough time and enough conflicts that like they've they've learned a thing or two. They've accrued their own expertise on on the battlefield but what's especially interesting about it is the fact that this time it's not guerrilla warfare it's not them as a militia sort of defending their own farms it's not this hill that they've grown up shooting from they've specifically very like carefully targeted points in cape colony that really effectively hampered um british ability to retaliate the first reinforcements to arrive are similarly beaten back by the Boers. The, the the reinforcements, their first order of action is to basically free up all these besieged troops. And they're unable to do so. The Boers have, uh, you know, they've had time to very carefully entrench guns and, you know, get themselves set up for defense of a siege, um, which there's an art to that as well. But the fact that the British can't take them is is kind of, it's it's miraculous. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a battle... Um, called the Battle of Colenso, where uh, 8,000 Boers managed to prevent 20,000 British troops from crossing a river <laughs> to uh, relieve it uh, at Ladysmith. It, those, those numbers don't work out. The British have almost, like, they, they have nearly three times as many. They have two and a half times as many men. They should be able to beat on even numbers every time. All these fights end up being, you know, people defying the odds. And that's, yeah, and that's kind of the, the story of the Boers, where it's like the British keep underestimating them and keep underestimating them. And it's, it gets to a point where it's like, have you not learned your lesson? These these people are very good at what they're doing and they're defending their homes. Um, 
but yeah, they, they, it seems to have been long enough since the first Anglo-Boer War that they've, they've forgotten these lessons. 18 years seems just about the exact right time. The British decide they're not, they're not messing around with this. They end up sending 180,000. Holy smokes. Soldiers. And I mean, this is soldiers, like British soldiers plus colonial reinforcements. They actually call on the British colonies to send uh, reinforcements, including Canada. It's actually the, the first international action that Canada takes as a sovereign nation. Um, highly divisive here, by the way, but we don't need to get into that. Very. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very divisive. Anyways, this is this war escalates to a point where it's basically a pre-world war one this is a this is a, an introduction ground for a lot of the tactics and weapons that will be used by the british in world war one and uh they're they're practicing on the boars so um, including like from was this not one one war where like chemical warfare was yeah there there was some of that it wasn't really a uh, you know the the lethality or the scale of, of no World War no I, but there were there were small tests um in, in this war yeah the so uh, it's 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 transitioned from we are in the modern you know, era of war yeah, yeah you're you're now just seeing the transition from traditional warfare at that point in time to something that's very different than what people are used to mm -hmm. british troops are no longer fighting in red jackets they're wearing khakis they're no longer carrying standards there's a lot of that sort of vestiges of the napoleonic era have finally died off, died off yeah. and a lot of that was a consequence of the first boer war um some of its crimea as well but the 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 that very very small conflict the first time around had a sizable impact on the british uh, army um they just maybe didn't learn quite enough to commit enough troops the first time or, or the the first time or when this conflict first arose they couldn't hold against 180,000 troops um, we don't need to get into every single, you know, action of this war, but the commander up to this point, um, uh, Sir Edvers Buller, um, nicknamed Sir Reverse by his, <laughs> by his troops because he kept withdrawing. Um, he was relieved of command, replaced by a field marshal, field marshal Lord Roberts, and he basically went, okay, well, we're we're done messing around here. Let's let's get this thing done, and. And in a series of, of battles, broke the major sieges. Mafeking had been under siege for uh, over 200 days uh, by the time he managed to relieve them. It was a brutal battle. That one in particular, the, the break of the siege, was um, very widely celebrated in, in Britain uh, to the point that Mafeking ended up being like a... They, they turned that into a verb. They To, to mafic. Um, was to celebrate wildly in the streets. That was a that was a slang term that was in vogue for a while. It's kind of kind of grisly, Tasteless. but anyways, yeah. yeah. Anyways, no, it, it seems about right for the era, though. Honestly, <clears throat> after breaking the sieges, Roberts turns to Johannesburg, takes that in May thirty first of nineteen hundred, and gets to Pretoria, uh, the capital of of Transvaal, named after Pretorius, right? Um, from the first half, he takes Pretoria June fifth. And by September 3rd, he's finished kind of mopping up the the troops. And uh, 3rd September 1900, he declares the war to be finished and turns command over to Lord Herbert Kitchener and leaves South Africa. He's done here. He's done his job. thing he didn't realize is that the war was not over. Not by a long shot. Not, not as far as the Boers were concerned. Kitchener had a different brand of warfare. Terrible terrible brutal 
the problem that Kitchener faced at this point was that a lot of the Boers weren't, weren't willing to surrender just because their capitals had been taken. They've had capitals taken before. This is more than that to them. Uh, they're not playing by the standard rules. And so they went underground. They went to um, guerrilla warfare, and they were very, very good at it. Very good at it. And this time, there were a lot more than 700 troops. Uh, they started hitting British troops just constantly to the point that they basically had to set up a, a checkpoint system throughout all of uh, South Africa. Um, little, like they called them blockhouses with six to eight soldiers at various uh, junctions along major roads. It took an, an immense number of troops to man them. Um, and they were still getting hit just constantly. And Kitchener was getting incredibly frustrated with the whole thing. It was hard uh, for the British to keep the territory under control. And every time it's hard to keep territory under control, military commanders turn to the same thing, which is a scorched earth policy. He decided that if there were no, far no farms to feed the guerrillas, then there would be no guerrillas. And so he started literally burning farms and salting earth. They started taking a lot of prisoners of war, and they were worried that there was going to be enough sympathy for the prisoners of war that they might be turned loose by local populations, even in, in Cape Colony. Uh, families who had you know been British subjects for um, nearly 100 years now, but had Dutch roots and had just never moved out um, to the free Boer states, might maybe have some sympathy i can't imagine why for these prisoners of war and might cause issues so any men that they could uh, that they captured the vast majority of them were actually sent abroad as prisoners of war over twenty six thousand men were sent to uh australia new zealand uh the bahamas india ceylon uh saint helena all over the place that way they couldn't come back and fight yeah makes sense Boers who took an oath of allegiance were granted amnesty uh, and allowed to remain. Uh, most, of, most of them refused to take that oath. Very, very proud. He realized that the scorched earth, well, er, scorched earth wasn't doing enough, so he decided to simply take women and children prisoner. He thought that maybe if these men's families were in danger, oh, lovely. Uh, then uh, maybe they'd be less uh, inclined to fight. The Boer War wasn't the first time that concentration camps had been used. They've been used elsewhere through history. Uh, however, it was the first time that an entire ethnic group was systemically targeted and interned in concentration camps. Um, all at the direction of Lord Kitchener. Uh, disease ran rampant, as it does in any unsanitary and cramped condition. Uh, thousands were killed by measles, typhoid, dysentery. Oof very nasty ways to go uh others starved to death um the logistics of the whole thing were very poorly handled partially because they just didn't really care and partially because they kept getting hit by poor commandos um losing communications and lines of supply the prison guards also fed the prisoners who still had husbands fighting less than people whose husbands had been captured uh Thus setting off a chain of events. This really didn't turn around until a South African woman named Emily Hobhouse. Um, she was uh, head of the South African Women and Children's Distress Fund, traveled to Britain. Uh, she wanted them to know what was happening in South Africa. And when she got there, she was largely met with deaf ears. People didn't want to hear it. They didn't believe what she was saying about the conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, then if 
they did believe her. They said that there was really nothing that could be done about it or that the war justified it or, you know, all the other explanations that have justified war crimes in the past. Um, but enough people started getting upset about what she was saying that eventually the, uh, the government decided to um, set up a commission to find out what's really going on down there in South Africa. It's a very long way away, to be fair. Um, but the news that was coming back was distressing enough that they figured they'd better figure it out. Um, they sent um, actually an all-women's uh, commission down to South Africa to see what was going on, led by uh, Millicent Fawcett, who was the leader of the women's suffrage movement at the time, um, to do an audit of these camps. And the weird thing about it is that when they got there, the British troops gladly showed them around. They figured that this was going to vindicate them. Yeah. Um, of course, what they saw was Terrible. every bit as horrific as uh, as Hobhouse had uh, has said it was and, and, and more. And when the commission came back, they said, no, this is awful. It has to stop now. This is this is terrible. There's no words for it. It needs to stop. What they had discovered was that one in four boars in these camps had been killed, mostly children, over 28,000 people. 26,000 or so were, were children. There were also 104,000 black... Uh, there, there was about 116,000 Boers overall interned. There was also about 104,000 black uh, South Africans interned um, for largely unclear reasons. Yeah. How does that make any sense? Um aiding the enemy okay I, I i say with about as much enthusiasm as i think that argument actually deserves yeah, yeah. um about one in four um or sorry about fourteen thousand of that hundred and four thousand uh were killed but that's a pretty broad estimate because poor records were kept because people cared less about them than they did about the poor uh, yeah. uh prisoners so we don't actually have good numbers on that um, which is kind of gross. Thanks for picking this topic, Gary. Yeah. I'm having a real good time. <laughs> Awful. No, I mean, it's, it's important. I, this, this stuff is important. It's just, man, it's a downer. Um, but people should know. Yeah, absolutely. These commissions would lead to an update to the Geneva conventions. Uh, specifically the fact that conduct towards prisoners of war were not uh, explicitly outlined in the Geneva Conventions before this. They would be by 1904. The Treaty of Vereeniging, I think, I don't know, man, it's Dutch. It's it's maybe the f toughest one I've said so far. It was signed uh, 31st of May, 1902. The war had gotten too hard on both sides. Attrition was abysmal on both sides. Um, and again, Britain is doing this calculus of like, is this still actually worth it? Um, and again, the, the calculus has changed. The calculus has changed. It's gotten very expensive to run this war. The political cost of this war has just become astronomical because, hey, they've been doing war crimes, apparently. Yep. They thought that this was going to be a quick thing. They did their whole standing on an aircraft carrier mission accomplished thing, and then they continued with the guerrilla warfare. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a harder war to fight just as a soldier. It's, you don't know where or when the next attack is coming from. It's yeah, they, 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 they were done. They also knew that the Boers were very done. They had inflicted massive casualties. And yeah. Well, and, and massive 
psychic damage on them. Like the, the, just the psychological toll of all of this was, was uh, just horrendous. And they knew that they were getting uh, low on morale. And there's one other piece of this calculus that matters a lot, even if it's kind of gross, which is that neither side wanted to start arming black Africans. Mm -hmm. And yet that's where this was headed because they were running out of troops and the Boers did not want armed black Africans and the British didn't want armed black Africans. The, uh, the British offered pretty generous terms to just get the thing finished Done with. And over with. Um, it came with a guarantee of independence from Britain. Uh, they kind of didn't really talk that much about what those, you know, what the terms of that independence would be though. And the Boers took it because that's what they wanted all along. What, what else are they going to do? Yeah. Uh, by 1907, Transvaal and Orange Free State had been completely abolished and rolled into Cape Colony. And in 1910, uh, the Union of South Africa was made an independent dominion within the Commonwealth. Again, basically same status as Canada or uh, at this point, Australia, New Zealand. Kind of no one quite got what they wanted and everyone sort of got what they wanted. At the time that the Union of South Africa was created... Uh, 20% of the population was white. That 20% owned, owned 90% of the land. And that is the state that is going to enter the 20th century. The Boer population resented the British influence. They still wanted true independence rather than uh, membership within the Commonwealth. Okay. Um, it's not as though the war ending made everyone okay with this whole arrangement. Um, there were limited attempts at further uprisings, none of which really got all that far. And uh, in a few short years, the uh, First World War is going to come up and they're going to be swept into that whole thing as a member of the Commonwealth. But we're left with this strange hybrid of a country. It seems to be a mishmash of people that none of whom want to be living with each other. The resentment is, is so mutual on every side but yet united through racism the, there's there's and and there's there's so many populations that were completely unbroken and still remain a minority with a strong identity but aren't big enough to take on the the main uh uh white population um the power imbalance that's there is going to haunt the country um, it's, it's just, I, I don't know how they could have not had a tragic 20th century. Yeah. It seems like, well, I mean, you look throughout history, any place that does not have one clearly dominant social group. Yeah. Um, we've not traditionally been very competent at, uh, uh, cooperating in those sorts yeah. of Multi uh, situations. Multipolar systems never really work out all that well throughout history. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, uh, the famous system of apartheid will go into, uh, into place after World War II, 1948. So it's not official at this point, but I mean, the, the state of South Africa is, it's got, it's got a lot of those double standards baked into it from the very, very beginning. Yeah. And will continue to erode those rights, um, throughout the first half of the 20th century. Um, and I think that's where I'm going to end the story because I, I think, um, without getting into, you know, more modern South Africa, I, I think stopping with the, the 
independence of, of South Africa in 1910, um, kind of does a good job of, of at least painting in broad strokes where we're going. Absolutely. From it definitely sets the stage and it, it, um, you have an incredibly diverse state and an incredibly wealthy state, but with a, a, a massive, massive gap between, uh, the, the richest members of society and the poorest, mm-hmm. um, uh, an exorbitantly large, uh, all based on, you know, natural resources and, and, and mineral rights and drawn along, uh, racial and ethnic lines. That is a, that is a recipe for, uh, a, a very, very troubled nation. Classic Britain. <laughs> well, that, that too, that too. I, I look at South Africa and I see a, a massive failure on the part of Britain. It's, uh, it's, it's really unfortunate how they handled that entire thing. They couldn't make up a mind on, on policy towards the colony. Uh, it seemed like an afterthought at the best of times and a, uh, uh, an inconvenience at the worst. There's a lot of military decisions made based on impulsively. Yeah. Yeah. Very impulsively. And with policy changing within very short amounts of time to drastically different positions, um, no wonder the place was a mess. Yeah. Throw that wealth in there. And that was just a bomb waiting to the, happen. The powder keg, so to speak. Absolutely. So that's very interesting history. Very interesting history. I'm glad you asked me to do this one as, as, as much of a downer as it turned into. Um, I, I, I think, I think it's a story that probably doesn't get told that often. And what's more, I think, you know, especially based on my research, I, I think a lot of what does get told, you got to kind of have to, you, you kind of have to take with a bit of a grain of salt. I saw a lot of very, very slanted literature out yeah, there. Um, I can only imagine. And, uh, you know, you, you work with what you've got, but like, you know, a, a lot of these, a lot of these viewpoints, um, lasted for, for quite a long time. Very famously. I mean, you got to dig through one, the lack of oral history, like you said. So you really don't have this from the perspective from the native population. You really don't. I mean, their, their stories are starting to come out like just now, just in the last few years. And the amount that they've lost is, is staggering. And so these, these nations that have these really interesting and, 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 uh, long, long histories, end up being sort of bit players in these struggles between European empires where they're just digging rocks out of the ground and it's through no fault of their own. That's where life. But I mean, you can, you can easily see the conflicting narratives, right? It's yeah, the, of course. it's the brave, stubborn settler yeah. or the, yeah, you know, Oh, it's, it's the stories that every, you know, colonial nation has to tell itself it's, to it's justify its own existence myth, right the founding myth yeah of course. every every country has one yeah definitely that particularly loves particularly in british funded and founded systems where likes to wash over all the nitty-gritties and like terrible atrocities that go into the founding of of that country but, yeah definitely but uh yeah yeah so there you go it's a it's it's a it's a rich history it's it's there's there's so many different people there which i i you know as as badly as it's all gone i i think that's really unique and 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 really kind of amazing about that country but yeah it uh it sure didn't live its uh its best possible timeline that's for sure nope no so that's south africa all right any uh any questions any comments very very interesting um 
very interesting story. Like, I mean, it, it's it's not too often that you get competing European powers that have such a lasting legacy to this day mm-hmm. um, outside of Europe. I, I see a lot of Canada in it, actually. Yeah, me too. I see a lot of Canada in it with, uh, you know, the Dutch playing the part of the uh, the Quebecois if, uh, if the Quebecois had the, the option to get up and leave somehow which they never really did. But you know what? It's interesting because you you look at the, you know, you look, we were just talking about the founding myth. And I think that has to be such a big part of like, you know, Canadian identity versus South African and Afrikaner identity as well. You know, this idea that you're from a group of people that is like a struggler, survivor, Mm -hmm. um, you know, had to. Yeah. That, that rugged frontiersman. Yeah. Fight to keep your culture and fight to, to stay alive. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's just as a self-fulfilling prophecy to all the, for all the good and the bad, um, as the American myth of like, you know, fighting against the government has mm-hmm. had dramatic impact and just like, um, you know, Canada was, a always at some point or another, never really completely dominated by one social group. There was always at least some aspect of multipolarity there. Yeah. Um, you know, just the necessity of having to have some sort of equal power sharing agreement in some respect. I mean, it was never an even one. Yeah, yeah. It was never an even one, but you can't ignore the fact that there's, you know, too big of a group of people to just wish them away and hope that they're just going to do what you say. You you have to, at least at some level, um, you know, appeal to that. Yeah. Um, but very, very different outcome in... Mm-hmm. in uh in this case yeah for sure but uh yeah well thanks so much for uh coming on today and for picking yeah, such thanks for having interesting topic i really enjoyed yeah. that yeah next time we'll we'll do something like super uh light and airy like you know the belgian occupation oh, of the congo save me you know please we'll, no <laughs> <laughs> you know let's let's think you know something very positive yeah sure i look forward to it South Africa's legacy of racial and economic inequality haunted it throughout its history, and indeed to this day. Only days after Gary and I finished recording this topic, a controversial land redistribution initiative intending to correct some of the historical crimes of the government came before their legislature, making global headlines. The timing was coincidental, but serves to illustrate very strongly that events have far-reaching consequences and are not irrelevant simply because they happened long ago. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about early British monarchs. That episode will be up on the first. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.